Welcome to this week's edition of The Vasey View. This is my regular podcast where I explore the links between tech and public policy. And I sometimes go on tour. I go on virtual tours. I've been to France. I've been to Estonia. I've been to Holland. I've been to Israel, looking at how these countries put together their tech policies. And sometimes I take a deep dive into a sector like agritech or cybersecurity. And sometimes I talk to big picture policy thinkers like Benedict Evans or Tony Blair or Malcolm Turnbull. So my guest today is Herman Narula, who is the founder of Improbable, which is a company many of you will probably have heard of. It's a simulation company, a games company, a metaverse company now, and it's famous in the UK. Herman and his co-founders founded it 10 years ago. He was coming out of Cambridge University. It raised the largest amount of VC funding of any European tech company a while ago from SoftBank, and it's gone through various different iterations. But really what I want to do is focus with Herman on what is happening in the metaverse and in terms of Improbable's journey, what that says about what the metaverse is, is, what it's likely to be, what its use cases are. And as you know, because I do this podcast and it's focused on public policy, I'm going to be very interested in hearing from Herman what the public policy use cases are, what the regulatory environment could end up being for it, indeed what metaverse jobs could be coming down the road. I just want to start with the really boring question for Herman. I should say, by the way, I warned um, Herman before this podcast started recording that I like to obviously tease my guests. And I have known Herman for five or six years. And the two things I know about Herman is, first of all, he talks incredibly quickly. (laughs) And secondly, within about three minutes, my head starts to hurt. So basically, the challenge for me during this podcast is to try and keep up with Herman. So that's the challenge. You can decide at the end of this podcast whether I've succeeded. But I'm going to start, first of all, with a question that even my tiny brain can cope with, which is, Herman, just give us give us a quick, compressed version at ultra-fast Herman speed of Improbable's journey over the last 10 years. What made you start the company and how it's kind of metamorphosized over the last 10 years? So I'll give you a little bit of now and then how we got there. Um, so today we are the world leading provider of multiplayer expertise and technology to the kind of Western games industry. So we are in 60 different publishers, every major shooting franchise. We help build Fall Guys, which some of your listeners might have played, uh, which is one of the more popular games uh, in, in kind of that space. And that's been kind of our bread and butter business, sort of growing our relationships and support in the industry. Alongside that, we're also building the first metaverse that can support you know, thousands of people in a dense virtual environment. That's called M Squared. And we're partnered with people like Yuga Labs, with other side to do that. And, and lastly, we have a defense business, which is uh, we're really proud of, which is helping the British government do and um, handle things like nasty state actors interacting with the infrastructure of countries around the world. So very topical where, where, where things are today. And, you know, the journey really, it started with me, Rob and others, really, really dumb uh, university students, though we were, we were overconfident and believed we could uh, solve a very, very hard problem, which is how do you create very rich, very dense simulations. And it took us a long, bloody time to get to the point where we could solve it. I'd say, you know, where we are today, we can now handle roughly a billion communication messages a second on our platform, which compares with 10,000 in something like Fortnite. And the journey to get there has been very winding and very challenging. And that was about raw computing power. 
that's about so the 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 metaverse is is a very airy fairy concept but i i think that maybe that'll help your listeners but i think to think about it really simply think of one number um the value of any virtual environment is related to how much useful information actually gets exchanged in that environment so if you think of a party well, how many people are at that party and can they talk freely? Can they interact with each other? Can they see each other? All of that results in more communication happening. So this metric, this operations per second, as we call it, is sort of the megahertz of the metaverse. It's the most important number and achieving very, very high numbers in, in the amount of information you can exchange is the important unlock for a lot of the really interesting things we've, we've thought about with the metaverse, you know, having concerts or football stadiums, they all require very, very large uh, uh, capacity to exchange this information. So the, the, the point being that you started as a kind of company that was going to do mass participation online simulations and mass gaming, in effect, was the kind of layman's way of looking at this. And that was kind of the metaverse before the metaverse, before it was even a topic that we all now obviously drop the name metaverse at every dinner party we go to in order to remain smart. So let's start again. You, you sort of touched on it a bit, and I want to return to this kind of billion messages as a second point. But what is the metaverse? Just for a layman, give us a definition of what you would say the metaverse is, because there are many, many different interpretations of that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think the, the definitions are very unhelpful, vague and wrong. And that's why I wrote a book, Virtual Society, on, on, on this topic. For me, the metaverse is not simply a bunch of online spaces which people walk around in. It's more accurate to say that the metaverse is a network of meaning. It's a network of objects, people, events, things that have meaning and which create value through experiences. And those experiences can happen in the real world, they can happen in AR and VR, they can happen in virtual spaces. The important thing is that this network of meaning involves all of these experiences, all of these things being related to each other in useful ways. So as an example, we can think of the world of sport, right? Who wins or loses football matches, the history of a club, who will or won't win something is very important to us as human beings. We've imbued a lot of value to that network of meaning. And all the metaverse is, is an extension of that. It's creating a digital other world to house all of these important cultural aspects of our lives and to magnify and grow their value. It's not exactly the continuation of video games. Video games are kind of closed loops of value. They're fun in and of themselves. The metaverse for me is a lot more about the transfer of value between worlds, between the virtual and the real, between uh, other virtual worlds. That's why it's so important that so much real world culture is getting uh, is getting kind of sucked up into the metaverse. So I want to talk about that in a minute. I just want to get one thing out of my head because it's live in terms of what we've been talking about. When you talk about a billion messages a second, so you, you had this metaverse event. Uh, let's just set the scene briefly before, because I want to go on to the kind of cultural aspect and the idea of humans and leisure and so on. But you've got this uh, partnership with Yuga Labs, the founders of the Board 8 Yacht Club. You've got this semi-separate company, M Squared, and you did this thing called First Trip, a few days ago, we're recording this um, in the middle of July. You did it at the sort of beginning of July, where you had four and a half thousand people participate and interact. And one of the things you said to me when you described it is you processed a billion messages a second. But clearly, four and a half thousand people aren't generating a billion messages a second. So, what do you mean by that? And also describe the experience of First Trip. Why it was so momentous that event? Sure. So that event handled about half a billion, but let's talk about the, um, the the problem and the benefit. So when you think of online games today, you probably imagine everyone is playing together. When you hear about millions of people playing Fortnite or World of Warcraft, mm. they're not. Due to the technical limits of these games, 
you really have rooms of about 100 people hanging out together. So when you hear about a concert in Fortnite, it's not really a concert. It's more like a music video or a recording that's being played to 100 people who, who watch it or interact with it. We wanted to go much further than that because we believe that what makes these events really valuable is the feeling of really being there, really interacting with the celebrity, really interacting with each other. So in order to handle that, you have to support thousands of people that can be in the same virtual environment at the same time. Unfortunately, that creates a lot of traffic because anytime one person moves, 4,000 people who might be looking there need to know about that movement. Anytime one person speaks, it creates 4,000 additional messages. That's why you get to hundreds of millions of messages a second being necessary in order to deal with this problem. And existing technology, like for example, that that runs Fortnite can only handle about 10,000 messages a second. In fact, WhatsApp globally, if you think of it as a metaverse, only processes about a million messages a second. So these numbers become really mind boggling really quickly. We can actually support now up to 15,000 people in a virtual space uh, at the same time. And we've also created technology so that everyone can speak at the same time and hear everybody else like in a crowd. And also so that people can be animated and visualized in really unique ways. That's been a quite a difficult and complex journey of different pieces of technology. And of course, once you solve all of it, how do you make it cost effective? Uh, that's a whole other problem uh, that we've had to solve. Well, that is amazing. I do actually understand exactly what you've just said. So that is incredible. So now I understand why, <laughs> why this is a kind of breakthrough moment, because I hadn't really understood with Fortnite, as you say, you get the press release and the and the press report saying a million people took part in a concert, but of course you don't really understand that's not what they're doing. Whereas, and so you've taken this multiplied it x times, so that is brilliant. Okay, so now I understand why the technology will a bit why the technology is such a breakthrough technology. But let's just go back again to the metaverse. So you talked about taking kind of you know real world experiences online, and, and again it goes to me. You know, I'm a man in my fifties. This is the absolute fundamental kind of sad dad moment. It's kind of what is the point of the metaverse? So, and going back as well to first trip, what is the point of interacting online? You know, I go to a football match, that's fantastic. I'm in a stadium full of thousands of people watching my team play football and hopefully win. It's a great experience. And part of that experience, as we found during COVID, part of that experience is about being in the same place as thousands of people. What is the point of the metaverse? Why is that an alternative? Let's take um, you know, a hated football club of mine. Let's take Manchester United as an example, right? Nobody likes Manchester United, but let's assume that you did you know, try, as, as if you can, to pretend that you enjoy that club. There are thousands of fans, millions of fans for Manchester United that have never been to a game and that aren't even in England. There are thousands and millions of fans in Southeast Asia, in Africa, in other places, in South America, who love the club, who would love to be able to experience what it's like to be in a crowd of other fans, have that raise their voice up, you know, interact with one of the stars, see the match in a live context. If I can give people the chance to click a button on their phone and immediately be inside a virtual environment where they know all of those other thousands of people are Manchester United fans from all around the world, where they can hear them speak, where they can interact with them, where they can make friends, where they can experience that moment together. No, it's not necessarily going to be the same as being in the stadium, but boy, is it a massive improvement from just watching the game at home. And isn't it an opportunity for people to connect in really spectacular ways? For some communities, especially virtual communities like in the metaverse, that was the first time that that community got to be in the same place at the same time. They've done events and conferences, but there were thousands of people there who, who never met in, in the real world and for whom they can do that. So the number one benefit is having immense social experiences, which really add value to real world experiences and real world culture. And when you mix in celebrities and talent and performers who you know, really only make sense when you have technology like this, because if you don't have technology like this, 
how are they going to decide which small room of 100 people to go into, right? You know, they can't, it's just not efficient, right? They have to be in a concentrated environment for, you know, an Ed Sheeran or someone else to actually interact with their audience. If you do that in the metaverse, you can interact with the audience in new ways. And we saw this when we did a K-pop concert last year. Our K-pop star, Alexa, she was able to be really relaxed with fans, invite them on stage, interact with them, get into a mosh pit with them in ways that in the real world would have been unsafe, impossible, or not really effective. And what the research tells us is quite startling. Virtual experiences, they aren't virtual experiences, they're just experiences. When you make a virtual friend, you've just made a friend, you've not made a virtual friend. And I think, you know, coming on to the final point, now that we have blockchain and crypto as a big part of this, people can actually earn real rewards or make real money or participate in a really tangible way in the economies of these other realities. They become a deeper and deeper part of our real world. Just going back to first trip, so you can effectively in these metaverses, I could sit next to Herman the Ruler in my virtual stadium, obviously not Manchester United in your case, and I can make friends with you. I can have an, an individual interaction with you as well as a mass interaction in the metaverse. Exactly. And I really recommend if folks want to check online for some of the YouTube clips of people that were there, but the feeling of finding someone in that crowd that you really know, or being called out by the performers and, and realizing that in front of everyone else, it, it, it is really magical. And it is, it is something I think I was surprised, even as a believer in this space, I've been surprised by the emotions it stirs in you. When you're performing to a crowd of thousands in the metaverse, you get nervous, you get really nervous, just like you would in the real world. When you notice people's behavior, it's very different from video games. For example, people follow instructions. Bizarrely, thousands of people online follow instructions from a host of some kind, because something about being in an environment with all that live voice, it seems to trigger in people's minds the same feeling of embarrassment they get of being in a real, in a real space. So I think these experiences have huge potential. Engagement in politics, I mean, this will hit home with you. You know, imagine politicians being able to have you know, rallies effectively all over the country really rapidly, even in areas they could never really go and, and, and see and meet. That's very, very important. It is. It is very important. I mean, it wouldn't work for the Tory party because all our members are about 150 years old. But I can see future engaged politicians doing a metaverse rally. It is a fascinating thing. And in fact, that will help me segue into public policy in a minute. But I just want to spend some time on other stuff, because one of the things I think, and it's going to come out in your book, which is going to be published in the autumn, is Again, going back to kind of sad dad mode, you know, there are sad dads and mums all over the world saying, you know, my teenage son is spending their time in their bedroom playing video games. And your thesis is that one of the reasons the work you're doing is so important is that, you know, human being, you know, what marks us apart as human beings from other species, if you like, is our imagination and our ability to tell stories. And what you're saying here is the reason we need to take the metaverse seriously, as I understand it, the reason we should take the metaverse seriously and embrace it is because it is simply part of our evolution from our ancestors who sat around the campfire telling stories. This is the 21st century equivalent. I think that's really well put. And I'd go as far as to say that we have a strange disconnect when we look honestly at our own lives today. We think we live in the real world, but we don't. Um, you know, fashion is not the real world. It's a trillion dollar industry, but it's not real. Sport isn't the real world. Who cares who wins or doesn't win? But it really matters, right? It People die over it. You know, culture in all of its forms, all of the structures, the labels, the rituals, the things that we do from weddings to funerals to gatherings to school uh, sports days to God knows what, our lives are this endless relationship with this other reality, this other world of ideas. And the difference between the, the digital metaverse I seek to make and the other world of ideas that exist today 
because I want to make another world where you can have experiences that are not possible in the real world, that are not convenient enough or not, not able to happen. And I also want to create a world where people can have much more influence on changing that other world of ideas. You know, the power of the crowd in a virtual space is tremendous because they can change the space in ways that you could not do in the real world. You can participate in the economy of that other reality. I'd go as far as to say, this is the thing we're going to be spending our time on doing more of when all of our jobs have been automated, when all of the other sources of value creation in our economy are more, more kind of handled by machines. I think virtual spaces and, 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 and the world of creativity, the opportunity to have a creative job, uh, to create art or to connect with people is going to be a much more important part of our economy. And what, where does this, your self-determination theory fit into this, this idea of um, people being happier when they're autonomous and able to kind of shape their existence? This is a theory in psychology that, I, that has been the cornerstone of a lot of my thought on the metaverse. And it's, it was quite startling when I first learned about it. It says that human beings, and this is 30 years of research, it's, it's really quite comprehensive. You may have heard of Maslow's pyramid, for example, Maslow's hierarchy. Turns out that's not really true. We, don't, we aren't structured that way. Uh, what we all seek is fulfillment. And we get fulfillment from engaging in experiences that give us one of sort of three loose categories of fulfillment. Either you're doing things because you want to feel like you're getting better at them, or you're doing things because you, you want to make meaningful choices in your life, or you're doing things because you, you, know, you care about or want to enhance the relationship you have with others. And if you do not get this, if you do not get opportunities to have these needs fulfilled, it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter if you have food to eat. It doesn't matter if uh, you feel safe you are damaged psychologically. It is, it is bad for you. It's why I think in our economy, we have a minimum wage, but we don't have a minimum fulfillment. You know, if you think about an Amazon fulfillment worker as a role, for example, or certain other types of jobs where you're denied autonomy, you're basically a cog in a machine that have to operate within certain parameters, repeating a continuous action. Those jobs cannot give you fulfillment. They can give you money and that's great, but they can't give you the opportunity to grow in all the ways that you as a human being deserve to grow. And I think, frankly, that our economy should, should, should penalize jobs and roles that don't provide, you know, that don't provide that. The people should be expected to earn more money if they're asked to do something that is, that is really, as we know, now know with research, kind of psychologically harmful. And even, even in terms of inequality, you know, we think a lot about inequality and wealth, and I think that's important and, and something to address. But inequality of meaning is as important. You know, if we end up with a society where even if everyone has what they need, a lot of people don't really have any purpose, point, or anything that gives them a say in society, well, people will be unhappy with that and they should be unhappy with that. You know, so, so we need to think of ways of addressing that. And the metaverse is one. The, one of the kind of side alleys you go down on the metaverse is whether or not you're going to have, you have to have a face mask, a VR screen. I mean, can you just quickly knock that one on the head? As with, as with many things, it's classic Facebook, you know, they, they obfuscate things for their benefit. VR and AR are, are cool technologies, and they're certainly going to play a role in opening up new and immersive experiences. But they're not really the point. You know, we already have hundreds of screens. We already have really good tools to communicate and interact with each other and really rich virtual worlds. The metaverse isn't particularly about VR. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt to have VR headsets. But the point of the metaverse is to have a network of virtual worlds and spaces which can create real value for people beyond just entertainment and where that real value can can actually can 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 be transferred from those worlds to each other into the real world hence metaverse right that's the important aspect of of the of the infrastructure and the experiences that needs to be worked on and that's why i think um, large companies will, will struggle with this because it involves turning the economics they're used to on their heads quite a lot yeah so that's what i want to explore with you so again one of the, one of your Part of your thesis is that this shouldn't, we should avoid the meta metaverse or the Facebook metaverse. That at the moment people assume 
that the big tech companies are going to own the metaverse because they're simply going to take Web 2.0 and translate it to Web 3.0 and our experience of the metaverse is going to be through them. Now, again, me as a layman, as it were, observing from the outside, I think actually that thesis is probably, whether I agree with it or not, is a highly likely outcome. I mean, they're massively well capitalised. They've got the technological expertise. They've got the people and the bodies. One company has already renamed itself Meta. How on earth are we going to avoid their domination? And why would their domination be a problem in any event? So let's start by, you know, will they win? And then we'll go to how to win. I think the first thing is to maybe observe the history of technology. A lot of these companies exist because another company dropped the ball. Microsoft probably should have dominated the internet. It's baffling that they didn't, and yet Google arose. Google should probably have dominated social networking. They had all of the means to do so, yet Facebook arose. You know, the interesting thing about these businesses is that they also fall victim to the classic innovators dilemma. Each company thinks of the future in terms of what it already does. It will struggle to disrupt itself or to damage its own business model, hence how Facebook itself is being disrupted by ByteDance now and, and by, by other companies kind of in, in this space. Technology is very full of mutation and chimeric strategies that are extremely counterintuitive when they actually execute. And the barriers to entry to building any of this stuff is much, much lower than anyone would have you believe. You know, it, it doesn't take a lot of people and a lot of money to create, you know, relative to what these large companies can do to create really compelling businesses within this space. Look at Yuga Labs, you know, they, they, they're now one of the best, one of the best known brands in, in the world in some, in some parts, uh, in some demographics. But they are not from the traditional fashion world or from the traditional brand world. They've, they've done almost no marketing. They've built their brand entirely through the realities of NFTs and, and Web3. They've disrupted companies you know, that should really have, uh, have seen that coming. That opportunity, I think, is, 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 kind of, is kind of continuous. But there's another element to this too, which is we talk about this as a race to build the metaverse, but we're not all running the same race. You know, Facebook's investing in VR and AR. They're kind of doing the long jump. My company is focused on large-scale user experiences in crypto and Web3. We're sort of running long-distance race. Microsoft is focusing on the enterprise metaverse, right? So they're, they're kind of running a different race. It's very unclear right now what the destination is that everybody can get behind. I think if you had a situation where it was an extraordinarily clear endgame, yes, I could see very large companies with resources kind of driving towards it. But this is still at the discovery phase. It's still at the phase where there's, there's not all that many people in the metaverse. You know, it isn't really clear how it monetizes or where the value comes from. So... You know, I think I think there's everything to play for and every possibility of a British company actually pulling it off. Incl- uh, are you improbable? <laughs> well, our approach is one where we don't think, so my philosophy is I, I just don't think one company can pull it off. Uh, you mentioned M squared as a network. I believe strongly that the value of the metaverse comes not from your ability to build content, but your ability to attract other companies to invest in building content. And our strategy is not to own the platform ourselves, but to ultimately democratize the platform and to have a coalition of companies that leverage our technology and can help make the rules of how the platform works. And that's why we made M-squared somewhat distinct from Improbable, although we control it for the time being. Our goal over time, as we bring on board more partners like Eagle Labs, is to turn it into a bit of a European union of the metaverse, right? To actually be able to form rules. That may be unpopular with your, with your listeners. I, I don't know whether they're pro or anti-Brexit in general, but the, um, I will say our goal here is to build a is to build a sort of coalition of companies who can confidently invest in the same ecosystem. And again, that's quite different from, and, we're, and also we're heavily focused on blockchain. That's not something that um, a lot of the other tech companies are very positive on at the moment. Why, why aren't they positive? Why are you positive and why aren't they? I mean, I would have thought the blockchain would be central to the metaverse. You'd think so, but I think it's something which is quite disruptive to large companies. Blockchain involves sharing a lot of value from the get-go with a lot of participants in a network. 
Users can earn real value for being part of it. They can even own it through DAOs. They can have influence and control. That companies are used to being walled castles of total ownership and control. They're used to you being their customer, not your, not an investor or a co-creator with them. So the general philosophy of blockchain has meant that, you know, here's a good example. There are huge blockchains, which none of which are owned by a large tech company. Ethereum, Bitcoin, all of these big services are, are new. They're, they're, they're kind of, they've disrupted how these companies think. And Facebook, for example, for all of their efforts in building um, a blockchain, have failed. Um, the, the teams at Facebook have left and two new companies, Aptos and Mistin, have risen up from that talent, building uh, blockchains based on the technology at Facebook. So, you know, we, we routinely see these companies fail when entering new areas. Where they are very strong is where they can use their monopolistic position to effectively bundle services together. And that is something, thankfully, computation, competition regulators are increasingly looking at and, and doing, doing, doing the Lord's work in preventing as well. But I just want to just dwell on this metaverse, whether you call it a, de- a network metaverse point. So exactly the point about Facebook controlling the metaverse. Let's just run with that conceit. The, the idea, you know, and, and you talked earlier about companies dropping the ball. And that, I think, is a very telling phrase because the theory, as it were, the business school theory is that you build this walled garden and you keep your user in, you know, which is why, you know, to be banal about it, Amazon provides you with music as well as film and so on. And, you know, everyone tries to lock you in. Apple, you know, has a proprietary operating system, et cetera, et cetera. Are you saying that, you know, your hunch is that Facebook will drop the ball? Or are you saying the metaverse cannot work as a walled garden? Again, the layman thinks, I'm going to walk through the door of Facebook metaverse and that's where I'm going to live in the metaverse. I, I, I don't think it can work as a walled garden, and I'll explain why. Um, you know, let's look at a service like YouTube. So YouTube is a walled garden, but it's a walled garden where the barrier to making a YouTube video is like very, very cheap. I can make one on my phone and upload it right now. And so, okay, if I become a YouTube star, YouTube takes most of my profit. But you know, it was a pretty low barrier to entry business, right? I just kind of took a video of myself, so maybe that's okay. Maybe maybe we can live with that, right? On on some level as a society. Now imagine you're the English Premier League and you want to build a stadium in the metaverse, right? You're not going to be okay with that approach to partnership. You don't want all of your profits sucked away by YouTube and nor do you want the idea that they could change the rules under you at will. You're a major corporation with massive means. You're a league of of very well-capitalized companies and clubs that could conceivably build your own technology, your own world, your own stuff. So how do we attract you? How do we convince you to build on our metaverse? Now, if you're Facebook, what you'll do is you'll say, look, here's my checkbook. Tell me how many billion dollars I need to spend in order to get you to agree to my rules and to be part of my network. And maybe that'll work once or twice. Maybe that'll work with football. Is that going to work with every single sport on earth, every cultural institution, every major brand, every major company? How much is that going to cost? Is Facebook going to acquire the entirety of every major cultural company we work with? I mean, it's a rich company, but it isn't that rich, right? You know, it's not a, it's not, you know, a one world government here, you know, it's, it's, it's something else. So, so I think it's much more appealing to think, okay, how can we attract partners to actually build on us? And we've had some success. Look at Yuga Labs. You know, they could easily have built their own metaverse. They, they are far more capital, you know, and, and scale than, than improbable than many companies in the space. But they chose to partner with us because they aren't really partnering with us. They're collaborating to build this network. They don't have to rely only on us. They can be sure of what the future holds. And they've agreed to something really amazing. They've agreed to interoperability which is something all of our partners are agreeing to. It's an amazing step. They're agreeing that you as the user, you can take your avatar and go into any world on the network. And that's your choice. And that's unheard of. That's completely without, it's almost freedom of movement for the metaverse. That's a very, very big deal. 
emphasize that point, Herman. Absolutely. It's, it's, a, huge deal. it's, it's, it's a huge deal. Look, um, these companies are agreeing from the get-go that they are going to be part of a network where you, the user, can take what you own and go into any world. And they're also agreeing that they're going to be bound by the rules of that network and that they'll have a say in them, of course, but they're going to be bound by them. That's extraordinary. That's market power. That's building a network of people that, that can be very strong. Now, we might fail, but I do think whoever succeeds will use this method. This method seems like the only logical way to avoid having to effectively acquire the world in building a platform like this. So you mentioned earlier the idea of a political rally in the, in the metaverse, which I as a politician obviously find very appealing. And obviously, there are two kind of political thoughts that enter my mind. One is obviously, how do you regulate the metaverse? And the other is, what are the public policy use cases for the metaverse? So let's briefly talk about regulation. And again, you touched on it. It's quite clear which side of the debate you fall on when you mentioned the competition authorities taking on big tech. Again, there are two aspects of regulating the metaverse. One is competition uh, and one is safety. You know, we've got a big platform regulation bill coming through in the UK. Brussels has got one as well. What are your thoughts on, you know, I'm sitting at my desk as a politician. What should I be thinking about how the hell to get my head around this stuff and think about some kind of regulatory environment? So I think we should break down the metaverse as, as I see it, perhaps into a network of businesses and communities and services that hold the network together. I think that when you are dealing with a less centralized, more network-like or industry association-like structure, self-regulation for some things suddenly becomes vaguely plausible, right? If you have a bunch of companies, they can probably look at and self-regulate or be benefit or be beneficial at applying um, things like IP protections because it's in their interest to do that. They're going to be logical and, and, and sensible about how they do that. When it comes to um, much more sensitive things like child protection, uh, making sure people aren't being scammed and crypto, making sure people are following the right rules and laws, I think we can strike a balance. And I think Britain can do a really good job of this and should do a good job of this, of creating creches for smaller companies to experiment, but having a very clear progression from small to big, where once you are big, you are burdened with regulating to large part harm that your platform could do. And we must dismiss out of hand People like the leadership at Facebook, who I respect in some ways, but in this area very much do not, who claim that the problem is intractable because it isn't. Look at Wikipedia. It's very well governed and moderated despite being very small. Or who claim that to do so would in some way, uh, you know, involve them no longer being neutral. They're not neutral at all. They define algorithms that they continually tweak that change the entire engagement of the platform. So I definitely think regulation needs to be on the table. But I do think taking a more open network view creates a little bit more possibility of self-regulation. Long-term though, I do think we're gonna be in a place where millions of people, very soon, millions of people will have real jobs in the metaverse. They are, there already are millions of people who are influencers and content creators in different forms. If you have real jobs in the metaverse, and there are millions of you, do you get taxed in the metaverse? Do you get taxed in the real world for that job? What about if you're geographically distinct? So I do think that much like you know colonies that, that break away uh, in history or countries that get founded after people's interests diverge, I think the metaverse will head towards a place where it is democratic. It'll likely have something of its own political system that interacts with the real world political system. And that'll be an important part of managing its, its, its sort of multi-geographic nature um, to create some kind of consistency. I, I see the metaverse as a country. You do see, okay, so this is kind of going in sort of slightly sort of Peter Thiel territory or whatever, in the sense of, um, you know, we are, we're a sovereign nation and, and the rules don't apply to us. Uh, the physical rules of government don't apply to us. But I mean, 
at the end of the day, you know, Herman Narula is living in London and at some point a government gets a handle on you in terms of saying you've got to pay, I'm not saying you don't pay your taxes, you obviously do, but you've got to pay your taxes and you've also got to, you know, what is happening, you know, for the sake of argument and first trip obviously was a great event and totally safe, but, you know, at some point a first trip of some kind, not yours, something goes wrong. At the end of the day, the authorities will knock on your door and say you're running this kind of metaverse experience, which is not safe we're going to hold you to account. I mean, you can't escape accountability. Yeah, I don't think that's what I'm implying. It's quite the opposite, actually. I'm implying that a company cannot be trusted to run the metaverse, that the only way to run the metaverse for the good of all of the economic participants is to give them enfranchisement. They should have a say in how it is run. My argument, though, is that the people who are actually involved, the the millions of users and people who earn a real income and have a stake, they may have a particular view of what policies are right for them that differ from the public at large. That is my point. I think you will see the emergence of sort of metaverse communities and that, that want to self-govern, that want to vote, that want to be there. And that does pose a challenge for government. If two, three million people are voting on something and are enfranchised and are involved and are owners of something, to suddenly start telling them what to do without negotiation and discussion is a bit more challenging than when it's just a company because we have a really great principle, I think, in our, in our society, in our system of, of governance, which is that if people are, uh, are voting, if they're legitimately expressing their will, that's something that you know we need to take into account. My argument is just, look, it's, it's going to be a nation without very clear geographic borders. I might be sitting in London, but maybe 10 other people are sitting in 10 other countries that we're engaging with. So how does that work? You know, We see this problem even today. With It's not as, as far-fetched as it seems. Just look at remote work. Um, companies today are trying to support workers all around the world. We're in this preposterous situation where we need to create new companies where we have a single hire in really far-fetched geographies, it becomes extraordinarily complex and, and ineffective. And again, it's, it's against everyone's interests. So how, how to manage that, how to deal with that? And this is where I think um, you're, you're not going to get away from the, the government of Great Britain having a say and managing how a company like us operates. Of course not. You know, you're right to think that's ludicrous. But I think you will end up with a combination of real-world governments and communities and groups in the metaverse that also want to express political will. That's going to be very interesting. We already have this challenge with international bodies interacting with uh, with local governments. So I see quite a quite a weird and fun future. I mean, there is stuff like uh, you know I used to take part in the Internet Governance Forum, which was a combination of civil society, business, and internet companies, all of whom effectively you know people don't realise you know a lot of the rules of the world uh, rules of the road for the internet are not set by governments; they're set by communities. Exactly. And, and in fact, with Web3, with blockchain, what, what many people may not be aware of is some of this is entrenched in code. So there are systems now like, you know, Board Apes has some of this and other companies do where the community can vote and that vote is binding. That vote changes the behavior of the system. You look at something like Ethereum or Bitcoin, this isn't governed by a person. This is governed by a community. So that's quite exciting. That creates some really interesting opportunities for very immediate democracy. I'd like to see the two systems blend, though. I'd like to see government and these new entities kind of getting along and a combination of of good rules and good services kind of supporting both you know b- both systems of operating operating well i don't suppose just a random question you've come across any politicians who kind of are leaning into this let me tell you my concern is i haven't come across any politicians with all the love in the world that have an understanding of what is happening in technology and on the internet that is accurate 
to the last decade. You know, yeah. I think if you want to talk about 2006, there are some fantastic conversations you can have with politicians about regulating cookies and talking about Facebook and ad models. But you get into things like crypto, blockchain, the metaverse, it is really new. And, and who can blame them? You know, this stuff has only come up, you know, a year or two ago. So I, I think expecting politicians to sort of like magically understand this all isn't there. But I'd like to see more industry, politician, communication and interaction, more kind of a more of a consultative relationship to make this happen. I think the new the new government now, you know, whoever it is that that is that is kind of brought in, I think by the time there's a next there's another general election, assuming that they, you know, they wait the full period of time, these topics are going to be much more prominent in people's minds. You know, the kids who are earning wages now in Roblox and Minecraft, they're growing up and becoming voters. They're going to expect their politicians to understand these things and that they're important to them. But is there anyone in your community? I, I mean, I always, I always slightly turn around the question. Is there anyone in your community that gets politics, can take what their incredible expertise in this particular area of technology and translate that into public policy language? We're an unusual company in that we're a defense business. So we have a lot of people who are ex-government in the company. So we're like an odd melting pot of the two groups. And there definitely are people in, in the defense world. Um, who get it, who understand technology and government quite well, and but on both sides, I think, um, you know, surprisingly, actually, there's some really, really, really kind of interesting viewpoints. But in the generally in the tech world, no, I think tech CEOs and entrepreneurs like me, and this is not my view, I'm, I'm unusually British, perhaps in this regard, but I'd say in general, they have something of a contempt for regulation, for government, for politicians. They see politicians as being incapable of understanding what they do and unwilling <laughs> to pick an event. And politicians see tech CEOs as arrogant and unwilling to be um, unwilling to be brought to account for the many harms that they that they cause on a regular basis. And I think the general public hates them both. Um, you know, so you know, I think the general public would like to see them both eat each other, uh, you know, and then be replaced by, you know, anybody else. So, you know, I, I could kind of I, I think that's a funny I don't think we've ever had a period of time where people have less trust in, uh, in in people who are meant to be authority figures. And this is another thing I'm hopeful with the metaverse, which is it's a chance for people not just to shout at each other on social media, but actually spend time together, actually interact with each other um, in ways that seem to be, at least at first, from what I can currently see, more beneficial and more human than just, you know, arguing on Facebook. And is it, and this is a really boring politician's question. Is it, if, again, if you were leaving aside the, the kind of deeply profound philosophical questions about governance and so on is this kind of the boring kind of inward investment question you know if, if you wanted to make your country the metaverse capital uh, of the world uh, is there stuff you should do beyond the usual stuff about you know, we need to make it easier for people with the right skills to come here and i'd create an infrastructure for part-time work in the metaverse i'd create a regulatory structure to make that to make that work well you know obviously we you know I, if somebody earns five dollars for moderating a virtual world are they now entitled to a full pension benefit i don't know but if somebody has a full-time job I, I think there's an opportunity to look at metaverse work um we failed with the gig economy right we didn't really think about it until it was too late and i think the metaverse economy will need, need similar thinking um also i think crypto you know britain could take the lead here, Britain could come up with a perspective on uh, cryptocurrency that balances the need to innovate with the desire to regulate. And it could lead the way in doing that. And that could be an incredible opportunity. Uh, you know, whether it's whether it's Truss or Rishi or Starmer or whoever, I think they one of them needs to get it right. Because crypto is the cryptocurrencies are the way you monetize the metaverse. Cryptocurrency and blockchain are absolutely fundamental to building any kind of practical metaverse. Because as I said earlier, they're a network of, of meaning and value. You need a means to move that value from one world to another and from the world into the real world. And cryptocurrency presents the most potent way to do that. Um, and so it is, it is an essential component of the metaverse. That is brilliant because I have never, I do a lot of work on crypto and we never ever talk about the metaverse. And that is a wonderful new angle for me. So thank you 
uh, for that. But can you just quickly, you touched on it briefly as a, as a, when you mentioned a moderator. Just give me an example of two or three crypto jobs. Uh, the metaverse jobs. Give me an example of two, two or three metaverse jobs that are coming down the road. Yeah, what's interesting is a lot of these jobs require, um, and this is somewhat selfish, but they require you to have very dense worlds where everyone is for them to become viable. So, you know, that's one reason I'm pursuing the technology as well. Let's imagine a metaverse bartender, right? You're a bartender in a in a bar for, for you know, thousands of patrons, and the bar is an environment where people show up in between their adventures, they make friends, they they sell each other things, they do whatever. And you are actually a full-time bartender there. You know, there are people who do this now in, in more niche games, but that role is one that'll never be automated away, not because AI can't do a great job faking being a bartender, I'm sure it can, but because human beings really value the idea that the person they're engaging with is part of their society and their consequences to what they do and don't do, the friendships they make or they don't make. That's one example. Creative jobs making art. So the metaverse is going to be flooded with art environments and spaces. And again, AI will help here, but human creativity will be an important part of creating things that that people value. We're, We're working now with architectural firms, some of the best in the world, creating spaces for customers who are building metaversal stadiums with us. And it's been an amazing experience. And these firms have never been relevant before because you never needed a stadium. You know, you, you, never, you never had enough people to, to kind of make that work. Um, so those are examples. Also, I'd say, um, lastly, like making a valuable virtual objects. And this is why crypto is so important so that they can be monetized through NFTs. But that's a really important part of how a lot of people are going to create, uh, create value. So I love that. So I'm going to throw uh, away all pretenses trying to keep up with you just quickly. The, the metaverse bartender is basically someone with great banter. Because I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make someone a martini. I'm not gonna make someone a martini, but I'm gonna. No, give no, them no, great- no. But you could, you could be. It could be the banter. It, it could just be that they're kind of mean, and that's sort of fun. People online, in the context of virtual experiences, they seek a very broad uh, set of experiences and fun and opportunity and variety. It's all the things that make reality TV stars interesting, or musicians interesting, or celebrities of all stripes interesting. It's the personality. It's the charisma. It's the ability to tell a story, run a story. We're going to need policemen in the metaverse. Of course we are, because we're going to need to moderate a behavior and make sure that people are, people are taking care of each other in the best way that we can. It's hard to automate that. You know? So I think there's a lot, of, a lot of opportunity for new opportunities. Wherever there's a mobile phone, I see someone having a job. But I love, I love as well, I love, I love the reference to architecture because I love the idea, again, it's all about kind of being zeitgeisty. I love the idea of running a huge architectural firm and starting to advertise for architect, metaverse architects to come and join my practice. Well, already, it's already happening. I mean, uh, Zaha Hadid is an amazing firm and I, I'm aware they're doing a lot of stuff in the metaverse right now, as an example. Terrific. And so you mentioned earlier you're a defence company and again, that's kind of where we first interacted. So that bit of the metaverse, even someone like me can get which is you create a virtual world and you road test and as you said at the beginning of this podcast this is highly relevant today you road test not just you know what happens when the tank moves across through the streets of the city but what happens when social media is full of propaganda uh, and so on and so forth so talk a bit about not just your defense business but also what are what are the public what are the other ways we can use the metaverse to simulate public policy outcomes? So this business is 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 sort of essentially almost a spin out now of, of Improbable. It's, it's part of the same company, but we, we treat it like a different business and it's growing really quickly. And they, what we're able to do now is connect together a hundred different companies worth of models into a accurate, provably accurate model of basically an entire country. And we can run that model at really big scale and we can use it to change how you make decisions how you consider policies, how you make plans. We've been responsible for speeding up planning in a military context, in some contexts, which I can't go into too much detail on, but we've been responsible for speeding up planning by up to 20-fold. 
um, because people can suddenly create complex plans, rehearse them, test them, try them in a world that reflects the complexity of the real world. What will this impact? It'll impact everything. You know, climate planning. How do we re? How do we think about planning an electrified grid and all of the complications that come from it? We were responsible for supporting um, the latest stages of of the perhaps more accurate uh, coronavirus modeling that happened. You know, later in the later in the journey there. And um, you know, and we think that's something that that can be greatly improved. But it's any scenario where the world needs to answer a question of what if or prepare for a, for a scenario we haven't considered. I think it, I think these types of tools will give institutions an imagination, a chance to like consider the future, rather than always, always be planning for the past, which is how we operate today. But it could also be really boring, like, uh, how do I build a telecoms network? Actually, we, we're supporting that right now uh, with, <laughs> with someone in a, in, a, in a government context where we're like, okay, how do you model the, this entire network and, and think about how, uh, how it will work? It's very important for security, but it's as important for um, co- commercial optimization and other pieces. And again, this, this stuff is quite early. We're, we're now in production use and we'll be talking more about it publicly. I think some articles have come out. If you can suggest a name, Ed, for the, for the defense part of our business, that would be, that'd be very helpful. Okay, I'll come up. I'll come up you suggest it on, on the podcast. I'll, I'll make it the name of the business and uh, we'll go from there. <laughs> and how quickly, are gov- how quickly is government ad- adopting these technologies? I mean, are, are you finding it deeply bureaucratic or pay- a pain in the arse? Or- They've been actually amazing. Uh, Brit, we've we've gone in record time from pilot to production uh, scale, and we've had incredible support from defense institutions here in the UK, fast, more than anywhere else in the world. And we've genuinely made something world leading now with their collaboration that is raising eyebrows everywhere. Every everyone that's seen it, you know, even even globally. So this this is something this country is really quite good at, and I think we should do more of it. And we should we should be supporting our startups, our companies, because. In the end, you know, if we don't have big global companies here in Britain that that run the tech platforms of the future, then we're kind of just customers to other companies' platforms. And that's not a great place to be. Okay, so final question. What is the metaverse going to look like in 10, 20, 30 years' time if when our children are doing this podcast together? I think in in, in 30 years' time, you know, I, I think we'll skip past VR and we'll be at the door of... of well, I'll, I'll start a bit simpler than that. I think we'll see a world where just like sport music and culture are big parts of our lives. These other realities where so many of us in our leisure time or even in our work time, having other experiences, going on adventures, creating things, forming communities. Imagine if we took someone from medieval Europe, just post the Black Plague and stuck them in a modern Tesco. They'd look around just bewildered at the sheer quantity of stuff that's now available. You know, all these new experiences, all these foods and exotic things to try, all of these languages being spoken around them, all of these interesting looking people, this incredibly rich diet of experience. And I think if you look ahead 30 years, our children are going to be the luckiest bloody people ever, right? They're going to be, they're going to have the chance to go beat a Napoleonic war for an hour in the morning, uh, you know, switch over and enter into a community where they're famous and switch over into another community where, you know, they're, they're craftsmen creating something. And I think it's going to result in a incredible diversity, a Cambrian explosion of our culture, new opportunities, new ways of, of, of basically bettering yourself and having experiences that wouldn't otherwise be possible. But beyond that, I think, you know, I'm writing another book, uh, which, uh, which I have never mentioned before, but I'm, I'm now really interested in, well, what happens when we can actually plug in? You know, what, what does the world look like? You know, technology seems to show us now that that will be possible. We will be able to actually connect our minds to machines one day. What does that world look like? Is that something, is, is, that, even, is that even vaster in terms of its, its potential changes? I, I think it is. So I do think that's where we're headed. Jesus. I knew you'd blow my mind at the end. <laughs> so that's, uh, 
Uh, that's fantastic. I mean, I love the medieval peasant analogy because I always compare myself to a medieval peasant because I live about three miles from where I was born. You know, I've always, I, I've always thought of you that way. So I it's know. great that you, you've been able to, you've been able to analyze that. I live three miles from where I was born and grew up, but it is true in the sense that no one could imagine, you know, even two hundred years ago, that you could be in New York in six hours, and it's incredible. And I guess that is the best kind of analogy for the metaverse. You can be anywhere in a virtual world. Uh, and the possibilities are absolutely endless and indeed mind-blowing. But Herman, thank you so much for spending time with us. Really appreciate it. I think people are going to find this podcast absolutely fascinating. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.